This is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Another edition of a kick in the grass. Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair, a fatigued edition, apparently. Follow follow us on Twitter at Dan Riccio underscore and at SN Jeff Blair. DMs are open. Send us questions for the show to our inboxes. And if you're enjoying the show, hit that subscribe button on your preferred podcatcher. We do appreciate it. Leave a review while you're there as well. Our guest today, Sam Stayskull of The Athletic and former U.S. international Alexi Lawless will join us as well. A deep dive into the MLS season and the way forward for our league here in North America. Jeff, what's going on? Are you uh, are you all electioned out? Oh, yeah, I'm all electioned out. <laughs> I, I I really am. I'm. <clears throat> I was all electioned out, probably on Tuesday Tuesday night at about eleven thirty when it became obvious this was going to go on and on. So it was. Yeah. I have to admit, thank God for football, uh, because it was great to have a whole weekend's worth of distractions in the Bundesliga, the Prem Serie A, and everything. So now we're into that. Now we're into that dreaded international break, and I I mean, I. I I just shake my head at the idea that teams are going to be playing friendlies and that we're this this nation's league nonsense is still going to be going on in in the middle of COVID nineteen when uh, you know when when teams are losing players for league matches because of COVID nineteen protocols. I I just shake my head the idea you're going to move large groups of players from country to country. I I think I think it's just I think it's just the height of stupidity to be honest. Well, and, and we saw that play out in, during the last international break. That's when uh, Cristiano Ronaldo uh, ended up um, testing positive for COVID as well. Missed a couple of weeks with Juventus. But it, it, it is kind of a silly proposition to, to go ahead and, and keep doing this uh, with the way things currently are and with uh, the virus um, really spreading at a, at a record rate in, in a lot of places. And we're seeing European lockdowns once again. But hey, we can we can still play football matches and move all these guys all over the place, I guess. Uh, but that's uh, that's the way it's going to go for the next couple of weeks. And uh, we'll return to club football uh, in a couple of weeks' time. But it was a pretty good weekend. We had a pretty good slate, Jeff, of of matches. That no, was great. And was I'd great. say. I'd say Der Klassiker and the Bundesliga stole the show in general. Even the the Gladbach and, and Bayer Leverkusen match was was fantastic on Sportsnet this weekend. But uh, Bayern Munich Dortmund it goes to Munich the champions again three two the final there a couple of goals ruled out by VAR for Robert Lewandowski as well. But for me, Jeff, I think the biggest takeaway is just the the talent gap isn't as pronounced as some might make it seem, at least not for me, but one team is, is great in clinical moments and, and the other isn't. And this has just consistently happened in this fixture over the last couple of seasons. Yeah, there's a real difference. I think you're right. There's a real difference up front for both teams in terms of how they go about scoring their goals. And, you know, there always seems to be a lot of effort and energy and seat-of-the-pants stuff for Dortmund. Whereas Bayern just seems to be the you know the the cold efficient German team, even though the guy doing most of the scoring at the end is a Polish guy, and we saw it again, we saw it again this weekend. Uh, there is, I, I I think you're right. I it's odd. I and I I realize this 
watching as the match went on and watching the substitutions Hansi Flick was making. I am not certain that the, the gap in talent between starting 11 is as much as it used to be, but I, I really do believe that the gap in terms of depth, overall depth, is as huge as it's ever been. And, you know, you, you saw that with the substitutions that Hansi Flick was able to make and guys who came in and put an, had an immediate Im, impact in the game. Some of them forced, uh, like Taliso coming on uh, when, when Kimmich was injured. But by and large, I think that's where you really saw the difference. Uh, I, I would like to have seen more of Jude Bellingham. I still believe he's a guy that can, can be a real difference maker for, for, for Dortmund. But uh, yeah, your initial point is right. I mean, Bayern is just, they're just cold. That's, that's the only word to describe them. They are cold in front of the, in front of the, the opponent's goal. It's, there's no other way to put it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, when they, they give up the first goal, Bayern do, and then they come back and they score just before halftime. But not only that, they come back out of the break and they score right away again to take it uh, 2-1. It's just, it was deflating for, for Dortmund uh, just after they got that, that little bit of of hope. And, you know, one team, Jeff, gets more out of the sum of its parts and the other team just doesn't. And I think... That's kind of been my thought on Dortmund now for a while, especially watching them more since the return to play. Lucien Favre, like he's got a ton of talented guys on this roster, but they just they don't seem to get more out of what they've got within this team. And eventually that's going to get pointed at the manager. It has been, and that's why he hasn't been given a contract extension. Yeah, and he's made some – he's made some odd choices in terms of his recruiting. Uh, you know, if you look throughout throughout the Bundesliga this year, I would defy you to find a player who has been more of a, a, a disappointment than, than Thomas Munier, who I, I thought was just was abject uh, against Bayern. And, and you know, look, uh, Dortmund had Dortmund was faced with losing some players in the offseason. Uh, we understand that, or in the in, in the window, I should say, we understand that the economic reality of things right now it, it makes it hard for teams to go out and fill gaps immediately, even teams with a ton of money. But I, I just I don't like his recruiting. I I think they are frankly a worse team than they were last year, and I've got real I've got real concerns about them going forward. Uh, but I also think Danny that uh, Lucien Favre is uh, is is he's he's not going to be around i i don't i don't think he'll he'll finish the year i think they'll bring somebody else and i don't pretend to know who but i do think this is really a classic example of a guy who is just isn't up to the task in front of him and with Bayern, uh, the the big question mark that comes out of this game is the loss of Joshua Kimmich who I think has been one of the the better players in in all of Europe to start this season. I've really liked how he's filled in for Thiago. Uh, It is a a, a knee injury, so uh, Bayern will have to find a way to paper over that crack. And if there's one thing about Bayern this year – the depth is is going to be a, a bit of an issue, maybe in certain areas. I think that mm-hmm. midfield spot is is one because they don't really have a a proper replacement for Joshua Kimmich, and also at right back. You know, we saw Benjamin uh, Pavard was not able to play, and Bunasar playing in his 
first big match. You know, the guy hadn't played Champions League prior to showing up at Bayern Munich. And this is a 28 year old right back. Um, you know, that was the one area that Dortmund consistently attacked. And, you know, he was quite clearly the big weakness for Bayern uh, in the match, even though they were able to overcome it. But that's in this season where we're seeing injuries all over the place because of the condensed schedule. And we're going to talk about that just in a bit. But that's that's really where where Bayern's um, biggest trouble might come is is injuries to these key spots. Yeah, I, you know, I think Kimmich is the is the most to me the most important the most influential player if if, if Flick is going to stick with four two three one and I, I I don't know why he wouldn't. I think he is. Look, Lewandowski gets the goal, so I would say he's irreplaceable. But it, once you get past Lewandowski, I think that Kimmich is the one the one player in this squad that is irreplaceable. Now he's had surgery; he is going to be out until January. One thing we do know, one thing we do know about uh, the Bundesliga, about Bayern Munich, and and German soccer in general, is the recovery rate from serious injuries is phenomenal, just because of the 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 sports science, the access they have to sports science, the number of specialists, etc. So. I fully think Kimmich will be back probably a couple of weeks before he's scheduled to return. But, you know, in the meantime, there are a couple of ways Hansi Flick could go. Uh, the, the, my first reaction was it was it, it was an opportunity for Mark Rosa that we would get a chance to see him. Uh, Hansi Flick, though, has is really preaching patience with him. So I think he's the guy, if you look at, at his skill set, is probably closest to to Kimmich in terms of actual, you know, in terms of, of what he actually brings in, in when we're talking about soccer skills. But I, I think you're going to see, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, you've got Goretzka, you can do some stuff with him. But I, I really think that you're going to see Hansi Flick kind of go to old reliable here. And I would not be surprised if you see Javi Martinez get more playing time you know, there's been talk about uh, David Alaba moving into the midfield, and maybe Nicolas Sula as well. But I, I, I really think that you're going to see Javi Martinez here as a guy that, uh, you know, he's kind of the Swiss Army knife, right? For for Hansi Flick, he's a guy you can put in, and you know that he's not going to make that big killing mistake for you in midfield. But uh, you know, let's say I think December first they play Atleti. Yep. Let let's let's see if I'm Hansi Flick. My plan right now, because I'm going to win Bundesliga. There's no doubt about it. My plan right now is take this time to try to figure out how I can replace Kimmich. Looking ahead to that to that match. And uh, if we look ahead, we'll continue to see a lot going on around Europe, and that's exactly what we're going to do now. As we Switch it over to England, and we had Manchester City-Liverpool, a 1-1 draw, Jeff. And it was a match that I thought was brilliant for about 50, 55 minutes, maybe even 60. And then I guess fatigue set in, whatever it may be. But the match really dropped off through the final 30 minutes. And I, I wasn't totally surprised to hear the rhetoric after the match from... Jurgen Klopp and, and Pep Guardiola both basically saying we need five subs back. Look, international English player Alexander Trainarno is injured. 
So in all around the world, we find substitution, but here we believe we are more special people on league and just three players. We don't protect the players, and that's why it's a disaster. So with this calendar, we come from especially year before and whatever. So I will demand if the people allow my boys to have to come back with a substitution to help the players, the managers, and everywhere to uh, to do it. If not, it's difficult to sustain it. And Klopp even went as far as to you know, go in on Premier League officials and say this shouldn't even be a debate. This is not an advantage for the big clubs. It is a necessity. Look, it's a, it's it's in my in my understanding, it's a lack of leadership. So you go in a meeting like um, with all the with all the different teams. The coaches are obviously not involved. And then um, Richard Master says, "So we have that point here, five, three or five subs. What do you think?" They had the, the teams had to be, they had to understand. All the teams have to understand why it's so happy. It's not an advantage. It's a necessity, 100%. So and it's in all other countries it happens. So and now here it's a, we make a bit more fun of the of the competition by having only three subs. That's that's really that's really incredible. So we have to talk again. And we, that's why I say it's a lack of leadership because Richard Masson sold it completely wrong in my understanding. Going there and telling, so what do you think? What do you want? What do you want? Yeah, and then we have the situation. It's the only league, big league, where you have only three subs. Surprise. Do you think they get their wish of having five subs return to the Premier League? Boy, I hope so. Uh, for the life of me, you know, it, it was such an odd, it, it was such an odd reversal to begin with. You know, the idea that you were going to allow five subs once soccer restarted, and then it was almost as if the Premiership decided, well, okay, in the uh, you know, in, in the six week six week break between the end of our season and the beginning of the next season, uh, we, we don't have a vaccine for COVID. Uh, you know, nothing's nothing's been solved. But let's go back to three anyhow. Right? To me, it was, and I, and and I understand the smaller clubs pushed for it. Understandably, the smaller clubs are going to push. I mean, my God, if you're Burnley right now, you don't want one substitute. If you you know, really, if you're Burnley, you'd like to have a rule in place where you just have to play with the eleven you start with. But it was, it, I mean, it's a classic example of what happens when you get a split between teams that have a realistic chance at playing in Europe and playing all those extra games and teams that have players who are going to be playing international soccer and then a bunch of teams below them that, you know, aren't, don't have a lot of internationals in their team and aren't going to be competing for Europa League or Champions League spots. And to me, it was a, it was a classic split. And I, I have a lot of concerns about it. Um, I, I really do. You, you're always going to get injuries where guys collide and legs get broken and things like that. But it's the soft tissue injuries that that really that really scare me. And I just think it's really short sighted in the part the part of the prem to, uh, to 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 have this rule in place. Well, and even when you see that it is back and has returned in every other major league in Europe except for the Prem. And I, I thought Klopp was, was smart about it too uh, to bring up the international scene and get the uh, mm -hmm. international federations on his side with this because, yeah, England's without Alexander-Arnold. Um, and he even mentioned you know, looking ahead to Euro the, the Euro next summer, who, who knows how many guys are going to be healthy after all the games that they're playing. And 
if you you're not realizing just how condensed the schedule is, you know, usually Champions League group stage fixtures are biweekly. You know, they're they're two mm-hmm. weeks apart. Whereas now they've just been piled all up on each other, and you have to win those games. You're not going to rotate your eleven as much, uh, and it, it's just impossible for these coaches uh, to manage all of this and you're seeing a ton of injuries across all of Europe not even just in the prem where they only have the three sub rule one thing about it though is if they don't change it Jeff I mean it does I think it really does put the the title not not in question for Liverpool or anything I still think they and Manchester City are are the favorites but it, it does make it a little bit more likely that we do see an unlikely champion like a Leicester who's top of the table right now. Tottenham who's had a really good start because they don't have the Champions League to worry about in the same way that City and Liverpool do. Yeah, look, I mean, if you're Liverpool or Man City, and, and I think those are probably the two the two teams we can talk about here. What you really wanted to do is you wanted to get off to a fast start. You wanted to more or less secure your position in the Premier League and then take a look at where you are in the Champions League. Worst case scenario for these clubs is we get into the new year and they're either not in first place or they're in first place with a one or two or three point difference. And now you're getting to a situation where you've got, you, you effectively you've got to make a call. Do we try to win the title, the Premier League title, or do we keep on do we take a run at, at Europe? And and I think it it's going to be interesting to see which team essentially throws in the towel first. And uh, you know I don't I don't pretend that it'll be obvious, but at some point Liverpool and Man City, I really think if these injuries keep up, at some point they're going to have to look and say, okay, what what what's our what's our realistic goal here? And for me, if I'm either of those teams. It's winning the Premier League title uh, because I think the chances of one of those two teams winning the Premier League title and winning something are better than either of them winning Champions League. And, you know, if you can kind of uh, adjust your focus a little bit and say, OK, let's let's focus on domestic titles. Let's focus on the FA Cup and the and the Prem. Let's look at that as our, you know, it's the two trophies we're going to focus on. To me, that makes a lot of sense. And I and I, I really do believe you're going to see both of those teams do it, because honestly, I. I I ask myself right now, if I'm Manchester City and Liverpool, if I'm Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola, what do I want to win right now? Like, I think the pressure was off Klopp the second they won in Champions League. I think if I'm Jurgen Klopp, I'm saying I'm just going to try to keep winning as many Premier League titles as I can. So, again, we'll see who makes that call. But one of those two teams is going to have to do it, Danny, because I just do not see, I do not see how they can go on uh, playing at this pace and and having a shot at winning both titles, I really don't. Yeah, and there's a lot more variance uh, in in Champions League, right? Shorter sample size, especially when you get to the knockout phase. Of, sure. Of of how things are going to play out, but uh, and you know, the Klopp, luck of the draw, the luck yeah, of the draw, right? Luck of the draw always plays a big part. Um, and and I think Klopp showed his hand a little bit um, with the way that he set up his team and going with the the four pronged attack of mm-hmm. fitting Jota in there next next to Salah Firmino and, and Sadio Mane. And, and that's yep. kind of what I loved about this match was just, you know, both managers went for it right from the off and, and they wanted to win it. And they played attacking 
sides, and it was for a large part a great, you know, a, a great advertisement for for Premier League football. <laughs> kind of the the uh, the complete opposite to Chelsea Manchester United from a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. but they just they couldn't keep up the intensity, and especially with the pressing way of each each of these teams. Um, you're just only going to see the product suffer from it in in the long run. And, you know, December is always a slog in the Premier League anyhow. Uh, this is only really just a, an appetizer for what's to come in these types of conversations uh, for the Premier League moving forward. Uh, mentioned Spurs and Leicester uh, as the two teams sitting atop the table right now. Wh- which surprise team uh, is... Like what's what's the most surprising start for you so far in the Prem? Is it Leicester? Is it Spurs? Maybe Southampton or, or Aston Villa? Oh, it's got to be it's it's got to be Southampton, uh, and and I would I would throw Villa in there as well. I think I think they're one one two. Villa may be a little less surprising, just because I think the way they finished last year. And, and I think the presence of, of, of Jack Grealish, you know, it, it really makes a difference. Uh, Southampton doesn't have a Jack Grealish in their side. They, they really don't. But what they do have is a guy who is obviously a, a very good, a very good coach and a very good man manager. You think of that, that loss last year, uh, Southampton suffered that, that huge loss. What was the final score in that? in that match um was it six one yeah it was a a huge loss a huge loss and you think of the way that that team pulled out of that and i i just i think they're the biggest surprise i also don't think with all due respect to southampton i don't think they have a prayer keeping it up villa (laughs) i don't know villa is villa can be awfully good at times you know, they, they, you talk about a team that punches above their weight. I think Villa is that team, but I also think that there may be more talent there than we think. I, Ollie Watkins has been a revelation to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's completely – it. the one thing I look for when you bring somebody up from one of the lower levels and throw them in the Premier League is I, 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 I don't mind if you don't score a lot of goals right away but show me that you're not afraid. And it's what I like about L.A. Watkins. He's not afraid. He, he demands the ball. He takes his shots. He is completely comfortable uh, in the box. He's completely comfortable against bigger defenders. I, I think he can be – I think that was a really shrewd buy. And, uh, again, to me, Jack Grealish is probably the best player in the Prem once you get out of the big teams. Like, I would put him and Jamie Vardy – those would be the guys I would look at uh, as, as the best player in the prem, you know, outside of, <clears throat> outside of the traditional powers. I'd say I'd say Lester for me, uh, and and mostly because you know I look back to the return to play and and the way that they played, and I, I guess they let me down a little bit. It was injuries and and, and other things that that affected uh, their play uh, when we saw the project restart and how they fell out of the top four. But this start to this season has been uh, quite glamorous as they are atop of the table again. Although I do, uh, there, there is going to be some regression here. They've already uh, managed seven penalties on the season. So um, that's something you just uh, is, 
I don't think is sustainable, even with all the crazy rule changes across uh, MLS, but or not MLS, but across uh, world soccer. And seven penalties, next highest is four, I think, in the table. So some regression is coming for Leicester, uh, who have scored a lot more goals right now than I think they should have, but still far better than I thought they were going to be coming into this season. And I, and I got to tell you this, I, I really do believe, I know I've been talking about Arsenal and Chelsea, but I, I, I think I think Chelsea may have figured it out. I think Frank may have figured some things out. Uh, I, I, at the start of the year, I thought Zayek was going to be the most important acquisition made by any team in the Prem. I still think that. I just think he's a wonderful player. I think he is he, he is the perfect player to put in a Premier League team. And once he gets that... I think he has a better idea now of his midfield. I think Timo Werner is finally up to pace. That's the team I've got an eye on because I think they've I think they've figured it out. I think the goaltending, the goalkeeping situation has been has been addressed. Um, I'm 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 really bullish on Chelsea going forward here. We know one thing: they'll outscore anybody. Yeah. And uh, look, I know Kai Havertz has maybe not had uh, the greatest of starts, but all their other big signings have, have really worked out well. Uh, Chilwell has been fantastic uh, since he returned from injury, exactly what they've needed in defense. Thiago Silva's been better than I thought he would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Timo Werner and, and Zayek uh, have, have really been brilliant as well. Uh, so, yes, more to come uh, in the next coming weeks, but, of course, international break as of right now and we've continued to see a lot of uh, head scratching decisions from video assistant referees and uh, the ongoing handball uh, problems which are being now reviewed by the IFAB but also offside and that's where I want to start our next conversation with our first guest here today and that is Alexi Lawless former U.S. international thanks for this Alexi how are you? I'm good. You know, I'm out here in Los Angeles muddling through 2020 like we all are and hoping for uh, better days ahead in, uh, in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're all on the on the same page there. I, I noticed you've been uh, stirring it up on on Twitter a little <laughs> bit. Um, dispute, uh, you know, I, I have felt a lot of um, the, the same uproar that much of uh, soccer Twitter has with the way that VAR is canceling out what uh, you know, I, I, I seems like a very good goal, maybe a, a millimeter offside. The the pinky toe is offside, or whatever it may be. Um, you're okay with it, or at least that's what I can gather. Let me know why. Yeah, I'm definitely okay with it. Uh, you know, the VAR train has left the station, and um, you know, I, I think the promise, if if the promise was that that everything was going to be perfect and every call was going to be correct and that everybody was going to agree, obviously it has fallen far from that. You know, it is still oftentimes very subjective. There is still debate. I actually thought that the debate that I love about the game was going to go away. It was going to be much more black and white and we were going to lose some of that gray area. That actually hasn't happened. I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised that that has still uh, uh remained in the things that we do but you know when when the argument if the argument was that it was going to do that then i think people uh um, are going to be are going to be disappointed what we are doing is we are giving these human beings with all of their history and baggage and bias um the opportunity to still make subjective calls at times but to do it with a whole lot more information and uh i i want that i mean the call was let's are they the yeah the call out there was 
let's try to get these calls right. And I, I think that we have gotten more right, but to your point, there is still consternation. Now, you can't be a little pregnant, so when people talk about, well, move the line here, you're just moving the line, and we're just gonna argue about a, a line just in a different place when it comes to what's going on. And if your argument is, let's go back to the way it was before, the problem is that people like myself in, uh, in the industry and in media and in broadcast in particular, the first thing we're going to do is we are going to show those pictures that show how wrong the referee, the referee crew, the, uh, the league, and ultimately the sport is. And referees don't like to be shown up uh, anymore. But there will be some tweaks going forward, without a doubt. And I, I, can, I can understand some of the consternation, but it also is interesting how different countries and cultures uh, and I'm certainly looking at England right now, have adjusted um, and adapted and adopted in different ways, some better than others. Yeah, look, uh, I'm with you completely on this, Alexi. First of all, you can't institute replay and then put it, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. That just, mm -hmm. that, that, that does not happen. It's not going to, it's not going to happen in any sport. If anything, it's going to be, if anything, it's going to be fine-tuned. What I what I would like to see, and I don't know how you feel about this, but um, I think it was, I heard an interview, it might have been with, I'm, well, actually I know who it was, it was with Howard Webb, mm -hmm. uh, former uh, official, talking about VAR. And he made a point about making sure that it doesn't become too forensic. And what he was saying is, essentially, don't take four and a half minutes to attempt to overrule a call, Right. You know, it, it don't don't approach it by saying, all right, this was a wrong call. Let's see what we can detect that makes it makes this call wrong, that can overturn the call. And I don't know. I, I think he was talking more about human nature than anything else. I don't know how you do that. I don't know if you put a clock on it and say you've got 90 seconds to overturn the call. But I, I think you're right. We are going to we are going to see some some changes. We are going to see some tweaks but it's uh it's here to stay and you know what it's it's all it's done is it's changed the soccer conversation it's changed the controversy around the game a little bit and i'm kind of okay with it i really am it is it is generational too isn't it because you know we mm -hmm. are we are coming at it from a little bit of an <laughs> an old a grumpy old guy type of uh, perspective as as every generation does where the game evolves and and changes and you kind of you want you want it back in its what you feel is its purest and truest form. And the reality is that there's a whole generation, by the way, there's a, there's a whole generation that's gonna grow up playing on synthetic, synthetic surfaces, and they're not yep. gonna think twice about it. There's a whole generation yep. that's also gonna grow up with VAR being part of their experience. And that that delayed gratification that we have now that, that oftentimes is also a source of consternation out there for people where the goal goes in, then we have the wait, we have the initial celebration, then we have the wait, and then we have that secondary celebration that's just going to be baked into the experience for a whole new generation that won't see it as strange or different. Now they'll they'll find their old guy and old girl thing to uh, to scream and yell about too eventually. But that's kind of how the world works. And you know, one of the things we've seen this season as well that I do like, and this gets to your point about about how there will be adjustments as we go along. Go along at least in the prem. I love the fact that officials are using the pitch side monitors. I don't know if they're more comfortable doing it now because there's no fans in the stands. I, I have no idea. But that to me was the one thing I needed to see in the prem. The one missing component was, okay, if you do have access to pitch side monitors, then I want to see the official, even if he's got his mind made up, even if whatever VAR has said, I want him to take one more check 
himself and make the decision. And I've been very pleased to see that. But can you can you at least admit that it's that it's much more for optics and 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 a yes. kind of a performance uh, in terms of going over there for the most part, which is fine, what? by the way, which is fine if it if it exactly. if, if the if the call ultimately is looked at in the general public as being more legitimate and valid because of the actions, even though they're they're theatrics, that's fine with me. So I, I completely agree right. with you there. Now, if with handball, and what we're seeing with that, we know that the IFAB is, is maybe reviewing the changes that were made to the handball rule last year. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel, like you as a former defender, when you're seeing some of the handball calls that are getting made, uh, how do you feel about that? Adapt or die. Um, if I was playing today, I would be playing with my arms behind my back, and I would have to adjust and adopt to a new game in terms of the way and where and when and how I approached each and every situation, in particular situations within the uh, within the box. So, you know, when it comes to this, the interesting thing right now is that they are almost looking to return to a situation where you're actually making it even more subjective in that there's a, there's a desire to return to giving these human beings the uh, the power uh, to try to judge intent. And that opens up a whole new, well, not a whole new, it actually returns us to that whole new can of worms because referees, just like judges, I would suspect, they like to have the law very, very clear so that they can articulate. It doesn't mean they don't like flexibility now and then, but they do like to be able to point to things and say, look, you may not agree with the law, but you have have to agree that I am following the letter of the law. And so the more that you can articulate and clearly state what's going on and have it be black and white, the better off it is for those that are the arbitrators uh, 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 out there, whether it's whether it's in a court of law, I guess, uh, or whether it's uh, a referee. Because when when you don't have that, you you come in uh, you come in for judgment and you come in for criticism and whether you're a referee where it goes to another group and then your decision on that day is is overturned or whether you're a judge and the appeal process and then your uh, and then your decision is overturned they don't like to have that so with 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 the handball right now i i understand what people are screaming and yelling about once again if i'm a defender this is the world i live in and does it make it more difficult to defend yeah but Figure it out. And the ones that do figure it out and are able to adapt and to adopt to this new world are going to be the, the, the defenders that we value. Yeah, it is remarkable how many handballs you see where I'm not going to say it's not an elite defender, but the number of handballs that are called on the the really elite defender in the game, it's quite often it's the other guys. <laughs> getting called for handballs, you know, and I, I really get the sense that the elite players have started to make that change. Sergio and Ramos, for example, out. I mean, love, love him or love him or hate him, but Sergio Ramos, if you watch the way that he has played now for a number of years, he's putting his arms behind his back, mm-hmm. uh, you know, constantly. And, and look, this is why I say, just make it, if it hits the hand or the arm, it's a foul. And obviously, if it happens in the box, it's, it's a penalty. And then people will say, yeah, but the forwards are going uh, to hit the ball up into the arms. Have at it. If you're able to do that, then have at it. It's only going to increase more, uh, more goals and more opportunities. <laughs> Plus, it's, and I say this as a defender, it gives the advantage and even more of an advantage to the attacking player. And I think we need that in the game. We want to give advantage. And if you have to change the fundamentally the way that you work your body and the, the mechanics of your body in order to defend... That's what's going to happen to uh, has to has to happen for these defenders. There, there's some thought that okay, well, keep it this way, but maybe change it so it's not a penalty. It's maybe a, a free kick from the spot, even if it's in the 18-yard box. How would you feel about that amendment? It changes the way that I approach 
the, the, the tactic of defending in that area. And I do think that with the, that area is, for, for lack of a better word, sacred in that things matter. And, things, and we've seen, well, even before all the rules started to change and the law started to change, we know that what what is a foul in the box is oftentimes not a foul out of the box and vice and vice versa, actually more vice versa. Uh, and, and that's okay. I do want to, I don't want to diminish the importance of when you get in that box. We all know that our game is very low scoring. And so I don't want to do anything that is going to give defenders a, a more courage to do things in these risky situations because, you know, because we have diluted the importance and the significance and the risk in that type of situation. So I, I get what people are saying, but I, you know, then, then I, if I have, if I look at it and say, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to deal with a, a set piece right here, much more so than them possibly getting it. So if I, if I touches my hand, I'm going to risk, I'm going to risk that. It's all about how much risk you want these players to have in these situations and how much, impact and effect and consequence there is to their actions in the box. Alexi, I want to shift focus a little bit to MLS. We are, uh, of course, going to begin and start MLS playoffs. What did you make of the season in general? You know, the MLS's ability to get a season done, a representative season done in the middle of COVID-19. And uh, where do you think this league is right now? I think, you know, once 2020 is over, uh, MLS and the players, the teams, uh, and maybe as much, if not more, the men and women on all the staffs across the, uh, you know, both countries and, uh, and the front office in New York deserve a tremendous amount of credit and praise for pulling this off. Is it perfect? No, but it was never going to be perfect. Is it fair? No, but it was never going to be fair. And whether it's the adjustment and shift and pivot to uh, to create that bubble out of nothing down in Orlando and how well that went, whether it was re- the return to home markets and then trying to get a, a season, uh, you know, all of this is just, it's trying to make the best of a crap situation and everybody understands. And I think they did a really, really good job of making the best of a crap situation. It's unlike any other season that we have ever seen. Uh, it is apples and oranges to compare it to any other, uh, any other season, but it doesn't diminish and it doesn't mean that the challenges and the unique obstacles and the unprecedented nature of this season, it doesn't mean that the players, the teams, and the league as a whole don't deserve credit, especially when they are successful in these unprecedented times. And so whether it's a, a Toronto FC having to play their, their home games in, uh, in Connecticut, or whether it's uh, you know the uh, traveling on the day of games, obviously the unbalanced schedule, and then just, just the practical um, risk and problems of dealing with COVID on on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis and how it can completely blow up any plans that you have, uh, it's uh, it's just a credit. It's a credit to all the men and women out there who work very, very hard. So Im- impressive, but also it-, it is going to have a very big asterisk on it. And that's okay. That's not that's not a bad thing, but I think it's I, 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 I think we're being delusional if we're if we're going to say that 2020 is like any other season that we have had uh, when it comes to Major League Soccer. And, and more so for, for MLS than, than other leagues, Alexi. I mean, it, it, it's really testing the league in, a, in, the, in the way that, you know, this is a league that depends on, on match day revenues so much, yeah. on the gate yeah. revenue. And, you know, even up here in Canada, if you're a hardcore fan, you'll watch it on TV, but you're connected to the club because you go to the matches when they are at home. And especially for the Canadian teams, having that disconnect, I think, has been tough on the league. So, Really, the next little while is, is going to tell a lot about um, the security of the league and, and how 
you know, they can come out of this pandemic and hopefully better for it. And, and look, while we got some great news today and, and fingers crossed and cautious optimism about, about the future, the reality is, uh, to your point, the business of Major League Soccer, I mean, it, it suffered a devastating blow uh, this, this year. And look, it, it compares, it doesn't even come close to comparing to the, you know, the human element and the human uh, suffering and, and, uh, and devastation. But the actual business of Major League Soccer, as you rightly point to, it's not about the TV contracts yet. Hopefully it is in the future, but that day of game experience and that budget uh, reflecting that day of game experience is is vital. It is the lifeblood of Major League Soccer. And this is the you know, this is the the the, the um, you know the top of that pyramid. It just gets more and more difficult uh, and more and more uh, you know problematic when you go down the uh, pyramid and lower uh, levels when it comes to leagues and, and teams right now. And it's not going to stop because this has a cascading type of effect. And 2021 is going to be an effort to try to make up. But the reality is that both 2020 and 2021. Uh, are about it, it's not about making money it's about doing things to lose uh to lose as little money as possible in a time where we know it, it's just very very difficult given the realities of what the business is as you mentioned on that day of game type of revenue whether it's tickets uh you know marketing sponsorship uh, concessions parking all all of that different stuff that just poof uh went away for 2020 and who knows if it's going or when it's going to come back in 2021 i think it will come back but who knows when and you got a budget for that right now so who knows what's going to happen next year it's another international break uh doesn't mean much for the canadian men's team because they've kind of gone into a witness protection program more <laughs> well as a result of covid 19. uh the u.s team though uh is going to be playing they'll be playing wales i think they've also got a match against panama if, yep. I'm, if I'm not mistaken the u.s has done something interesting here and in that it seems as if they've decided Greg Berhalter and the people uh, people running the U.S. program, Alexi, it seems that they've decided to just to use their European base players in this window, <clears throat> leave the MLS guys here to, you know, get ready for the playoffs, play the playoffs and everything. And I was looking at the U.S. men's roster of their European base players. You know, we're all excited in Canada about Alfonso Davies, mm -hmm. uh, even though he's hurt, Jonathan David. Uh, Alexi, that's that's a really good U.S. squad. It's young, and they've got a lot of like really good players. It's it's so interesting because it wasn't, but you know, but a few years ago, I, you know, I would argue it was the lowest point for the U.S. men's national team and the yeah. darkest, uh, and obviously the the most epic type of failure, not making the 2018 World Cup, and that was 2017. And so now, three years later, I could argue that this is the most optimistic and bright uh, and excited that the United States soccer community has ever been about the U.S. men's national team, because you rightly point to, it's not just the players. We've had players playing in Europe for years and years and years. It's it's more importantly, the leagues which they're playing in, and even more importantly than that, the teams on which they are. And so if, if we're going to throw out a team right now, and we can say that we have players playing at Chelsea, Barcelona, Juventus, Dortmund, mm -hmm. Uh, RB Leipzig, and the list the list goes on and on, uh, and obviously down. But you know those are the major types of points right there, and they're all young. They're all getting time on the field. That's that's a oh by the way, uh, you know um, uh, Man City with Zach Steffen. I know he's not starting, but he's the he's the mm -hmm. number two there. So yeah, this is you know for 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 the American soccer community right now, this is kind of something that they have hoped and prayed would 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 arrive. Now it's still all on paper. And we don't know ultimately what it's going to look like from a national team perspective, but 
you're certainly hedging your bets. And this is this is a fun time for Greg Berhalter because he has so many different players right now at his disposal that are that are quality, that are talented. But the other part of it is, like you mentioned, 2020's lost. Uh, there is basically the last time this team got together was at the beginning of the year. So all of that time uh, and games and experience and assessment is is out the window. And it's not. It's no different for a lot of teams. So we're gonna we're gonna see this week what this team looks like. And yes, like you mentioned, the MLS players aren't going to be involved. But this is going to be a fun way to kind of see what 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 are these players not on paper. What do they actually look like when they are in uh, the situation with the national team? And to see if Greg Berhalter alters his thinking anyway. Because remember, guys, he he came in with a kind of robust and big and progressive and romantic type of way, and one like we haven't seen before trying to implement that and even in normal times you don't got a lot of time and certainly right now greg berhalter has lost a lot of time in 2020 and we'll see if he come if he becomes more pragmatic and realistic about what he wants to do with this team a uh, huge 12 months upcoming uh, internationally both for uh, the u.s and of course canada as uh, world cup qualifying to begin in 2021 alexi really appreciate your thoughts and your insights uh, all the best stay safe stay healthy Right back at you guys. Uh, good things ahead for, uh, on and off the soccer field for everybody. Yeah, I think so. Thanks, Alexi. Stay safe. You got it. Follow him on Twitter by his name, Alexi Lawless, and also uh, check out the State of the Union pod uh, on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. It is Dan Richo and Jeff Blair. We'll continue this talk about Major League Soccer, how they've managed the pandemic and the way forward for the league and just how much the loss of revenues will affect strategies for teams moving forward. It is a kick in the grass on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Back in on a kick in the grass, Dan Richo and Jeff Blair now joining us from The Athletic, Sam Stasekel covering MLS. Thanks for this, Sam. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for having me on. How are you this morning? Uh, we're, we're pretty good. Getting ready for uh, MLS Cup playoffs. Uh, should be a few more snowballs like the one we saw with uh, Real Salt Lake yesterday. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it's, it's been quite the MLS season. Um, just now that it's kind of in the books, at least the regular season, how would you assess uh, Major League Soccer and how they did managing this through the pandemic? Yeah, I think they did pretty well, all things considered, you know, um, went into the bubble, had some issues from the jump in the bubble with Nashville and with Dallas. You know, I think if they could go back again, the league would draw a harder line with the players union on um, mandating the quarantine off the jump um, in the bubble. And then maybe we wouldn't have seen the spread among those two teams um, and they would have been able to play. But since then, you know, the Rapids had an outbreak. But other than that, there have been almost very there have been very few games canceled um working you know as you guys well know with the three canadian teams and setting them up in the united states uh, for extended periods of time uh so they can play their matches um you know i think it's pretty remarkable that they got they got the season even though it was shortened um that they got 23 mostly at least 23 regular season games in for all the teams um so yeah i think i think looking back they they should be proud and they have a lot to be proud of the other thing MLS managed to get as well was a new CBA, sort of just out of the, I guess, out of the ashes of this, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, how How is this league positioned financially going forward? Understanding we won't know the full impact of COVID-19 until 
well, frankly, probably for a couple of seasons. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously revenue is way down this year. Uh, no secret about that. MLS gets the bulk or maybe not the bulk, but the biggest bucket of revenue for MLS is, is from game day. Um, and pretty much all of that evaporated, at least for most teams this season. So that's a big hit. Um, I would say on the plus side for MLS, you know, you're not talking about the magnitude isn't as great as it is in the NBA, for instance, right? The revenues, the starting point is lower. Um, so while you're losing a, a very high percentage, um, maybe the absolute sum isn't quite as high. And you're talking about an ownership group that by and large, um, at least from a financial and a wealth standpoint, is the peer of an ownership group of the NBA or NFL or MLB or what have you. Um, so they can, by and large, sustain those losses. And costs are relatively controlled and all of those things. That being said, um, I do expect that there will be more negotiations between the between the players' union and the league this winter. Um, you know, they have the force majeure clause where if, and, and they can kind of activate that um, here over the next couple of months. Um, I believe January 1st is the exact date, but they can notify ahead of that. Um, so there will be some more negotiations this winter, I fully expect, and we'll see what comes out of that. Um, so going to be interesting. Story's definitely not over, though. Would that clause be uh, on the player side or, or the league that they? It would can... be on the league. So basically, it, for those who don't remember from over the summer, the force majeure clause is like basically like the act of God clause, right? Where yeah. it's like if if there's some uncontrollable event that comes in and affects the season, like say a pandemic, um, that you can go back to the table and renegotiate things. Um, obviously you know, or hopefully I should say the pandemic will not play as big of a role in 2021 as it did in 2020. But I think it's fair to expect um, that, you know, we'll be looking at at minimum reduced capacity crowds um, in many venues around the league, if not all. Um, and I think the league will point to that and they'll probably point to the NBA and the NFL as kind of models of like, hey, they're going to be affected in 2021 and so are we. Um, so let's go back to the table and figure something new out. Uh, so I, I expect that to happen this winter. You know, I've always thought that one of the, I guess, the next step in growth for MLS would be to become a league that can sell some of its players without necessarily putting up with or, or, or without having its fans react by getting up in arms and, and viewing it as, you know, MLS being cheap and, and just focusing on the bottom line. In other words, that that the skill level of the players and the competitive level is enough that teams can comfortably trade or sorry, comfortably sell players without having to put up with a revolt from fans all the time. And I know you wrote about this and talked about this a little bit over, over the summer, I believe um, about how MLS would like to be a bit of a selling league. How has COVID-19 impacted that? And can you maybe explain to us a little more of that strategy? Because it is something I know sure. that even folks around TFC have talked about, uh, and, and again, sort of struggling with the idea that you can do this without telling your fans that you're being cheap, right? Just say, look, this makes good economic sense. And also it paves the way for more young players to come up. Yeah. And potentially paves the way for even bigger signings in the future. Right. I mean, this is how the rest mm -hmm. of the world works, right? You can call it being cheap. I don't, I would, I would disagree with that. This is how every club around the world works. They, they develop players, they sell them on. Um, they acquire players, they then sell them on. 
Um, and the whole idea is to kind of make a profit that you can take and then reinvest back into the team. Um, so I, th I think that's the, that's the main goal here. You know, MLS does need to generate more revenue. I don't think there's any secret there. Um, and this is a bucket of revenue that they've pretty much by and large entirely missed out on over the years. So they're trying to change that. And, and that's a big, maybe primary motivator for this. That being said, that doesn't mean that the league has to get worse. If anything, I'm of the opinion that like when Alfonso Davies leaves the Vancouver Whitecaps, goes to Bayern Munich for anywhere from 13 to $22 million, depending on those escalators. And I'm guessing he's hit most of those escalators already. <laughs> um, so 22 million bucks, uh, and then goes and becomes a starter for the best team in the world. I think that's kind of a cool thing. You know, I think that's like kind of a nice feather in your cap. Obviously the Whitecaps, you know, you'd love to have him, but I don't think anyone's of, of the opinion that MLS is the best league in the world or anything like that. It's natural for players, particularly younger ones, to want to move on. Um, so I think there's there's a ton that goes into it um, in terms of how COVID-19 has affected it. You know, it's hard to say. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, say, it depressed the market a little bit for a guy like Diego Rossi from LAFC um, or a guy like Brian Rodriguez for LAFC or maybe some other players. Um, you know, revenues are down around the world. It's not just here in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, they're down in Europe, down in South America. So the market is a little less robust than it was previously. Um, and so maybe that maybe that affected the value for guys that weren't sold um, and probably for guys that were sold too. You know, a guy like Reggie Cannon moving from Dallas to Boa Vista in Portugal. Um, his value maybe would have been a little bit higher um, in a pre-COVID world. Um, so I think a slight decrease. Um, but, you know, I think teams are still... Still, European teams are still looking to MLS kind of increasingly these days than they have been in the past for players. And do you think uh, for, for MLS teams acquiring, you know, we've seen them go to South America quite a bit. Um, are, are we going to see that or just transfer funds not quite there to make those kind of purchases that convince a, a highly touted South American player like, yeah, I'm going to choose MLS before going to Europe? I think we'll continue to see it. I mean, we saw some of it already, right? Like Minnesota brought in Babelo Reynoso for a lot of money this summer, right? After COVID hit. Um, so I think we'll continue to see that, um, particularly with this young transfer fund that is expected to come online next season, um, which will basically allow teams three spots to go out and spend whatever they want on transfer players, on transfer fees for under 22 players, as long as they stay under a certain salary threshold. Um, so yeah, I think that I think that will continue, and I think MLS, because of the ownership that I was talking about earlier, you know, these owners, a lot of them are billionaires, and while they're hurting relative to what they were before, right, they're hurting a lot less than some of these clubs elsewhere around the world. So their relative strength maybe has increased, if anything, um, and so I think that will allow them to continue to buy, um, particularly if that young player role comes online. A couple of teams, uh, Atlanta and, and L.A., um, missing the playoffs. Uh, I know L.A.'s been going through it uh, for quite a while now, Sam, but uh, yeah. Atlanta is surprising uh, to me. Just kind of these are big spenders, and we equate spending with success. Why, why did it not work out for those teams? Well, Atlanta, I mean, many reasons. Joseph Martinez going down in the first game with a torn ACL uh, certainly is high on that list. Um, yeah. But I think more than anything else, it's this. This to me is is a problem of overall roster management. Um, 
they had a really talented roster in 2018 and in 2019. They lost some of those pieces. You know, Miguel Amiron was sold to Newcastle. Um, he was his replacement was PT Martinez, who, by all rights, you know, everyone thought it was going to be a great signing, right? He has the pedigree, he has the talent. He didn't work out, um, and I don't think that's necessarily Atlanta's fault. Uh, I don't think anyone disagreed with that signing at the time. But you lose guys like Darlington Nagby, like Leandro Gonzalez Pires, you know, two of the best in their position in all of MLS, center back and central midfield. Uh, Julian Gressel, Tito Vialba, they just lost a lot and they did not replace those players effectively at all. You know, they brought in new guys who were not up to par by and large. Um, and that's, that's the main issue with Atlanta. Um, they did spend a lot of money, um, still on some of those other guys, um, and, and they didn't perform. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how much room they have to kind of get out of it this winter. Um, obviously they'll be looking for a new coach. You know, they fired Frank DeBoer months ago. Uh, and they still haven't brought in anybody new. Um, and that was part of the problem, too. For L.A., you know, it's – L.A. is – they're the instant gratification club, right? They need the big, flashy signing, and they need to win right away. And they don't really address their underlying problems. And their underlying problem for the last four seasons now since Bruce Arena left has been their defense. They've been bottom five in the league in goals allowed each of the last four seasons. And Zlatan papered over that a bit because he was scoring a goal every single game. But when he leaves and Chicharito comes in and is a disaster, let's call it what it is, um, then, you know, and the defense hasn't changed, uh, then things kind of fall apart. Um, you know, I still think they should have been better than what they were this year. I think they have they had some good players. They had some talented players and they underperformed. And I think a lot of that was down to coaching. Um, they also made a change with Guillermo Barros-Scoloto. So, Tons of questions for the Galaxy this offseason in terms of what they want to be, how they want to get there. Um, but I think first things first, they need a coach and they uh, they need to get some new center backs in there. Sam, I think one of the clubs we're all watching in part because, let's face it, David Beckham still, the name still rings, you know, still rings true to a lot of fans was Inter-Miami. And I'm just wondering what you made of their first year. And also, you know, the rumors out there that Beckham may be talking to Sergio Ramos about possibly uh, <laughs> joining Miami. Yeah, well, they, they're connected to a new star every week. So, you know, mm-hmm. I don't put a ton of stock into that, um, particularly since they have their DP spots filled. Um, and I don't think Sergio Ramos is coming for a TAM deal. Um, so mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't put much in there. Also, center back is arguably their strongest position. So that wouldn't make a ton of sense to me. In terms of their first season overall, um, this is weird to say because they're an expansion team that made the playoffs, but disappointing. Relative to the money they spent, the players they went out and signed, all those names that they were connected to, and the talent that they have, I think they underperformed pretty massively, to be honest. You know, they barely snuck into the playoffs, 10th place in the East, 24 points through 23 games, you know, they get to say, oh, we made the postseason. And who knows, maybe they make a run. But making the postseason when 10 of 14 teams in the Eastern Conference make it isn't like some great accomplishment. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that's, that's not a very good season. And in a normal non-COVID season, that's not a playoff team. Um, so I think pretty underwhelming. And I think you only need to look at Nashville to, to say how underwhelming. right? Nashville, the other expansion team this season, uh, didn't spend spent a fraction of the money Miami did. And they had eight more points, you know, and, and made the playoffs, ended up making pretty comfortably. Uh, 
Um, you know, seven, 13 and three was Miami's record. That's not good. Minus 10 goal difference. Not good. Um, and I get their expansion team, but, um, for the money they spent, the expectations for them were to be Atlanta or LAFC in their first year. And those teams were third and fourth or so thereabouts in their respective conferences. And Miami weren't close to that. I know, I know it was expanded playoffs, Sam, for the, the pandemic season here that we've had. But, I mean, this has long been a problem for with MLS for me is just the, the regular season doesn't mean a ton. And, and having Montreal and, and Miami uh, sneak in into these play-in games and say that they made the playoffs is, like, like you just mentioned, they're, they're objectively bad seasons. The Whitecaps were, were poor pretty much all season long, and they were in the thick of the playoff hunt right up until this, this final week here. Um, is, does MLS have to do something about its its playoff system to make its regular season matter more? Uh, no, I don't think so. You know, and, and you can argue that this expanded playoff system makes the regular season matter more than it would otherwise, right? Because you have all these teams playing for something on the final day, right? Whereas if, you know, you take four teams or six teams from each conference, then a lot more clubs are not going to play for anything um, for the last month of the season. Uh, I get where you're coming from, though. I think what what needs to change is how we judge these teams, right? Making the playoffs does not equal success in MLS. Too many teams make it, you know? 18 of 26 teams make it this year. So just sneaking into the field doesn't mean you're a good organization or that you're trending in the right direction or it doesn't mean you're successful, right? So I think what needs to change is how we judge these playoff teams. And, you know, you look at Miami, right? You look at... San Jose, um, you look at New England, Montreal, like, are these great years that they've had? No. Like, and I think that's fair to say, even though they made the playoffs and anything can happen in a single elimination postseason tournament, um, I think it's fair to call that what it is. It's, uh, it, it is going to be interesting to see how this all plays out because, you know, we usually we do see some form of a Cinderella run, it seems, in the MLS Cup playoffs. Uh, <laughs> but before we let you go, uh, who would you say is your favorites uh, in, in each conference to go all the way through? Um, you know, with the large caveat that anything can and usually does happen, um, I'm going to say Toronto in the East. And I'm going to say Seattle in the West. Again, <laughs> even though Seattle has an impossible path, they have to play LAFC, then probably Portland, then maybe Kansas City. So they would have to play kind of the three top teams, in my opinion, in the conference to get there. Um, but these teams know how to do it. And until someone shows me otherwise, I'm not really going to believe in anybody else. It's, uh, it's crazy that TFC and uh, Seattle have become, you know, Lakers Celtics uh, from the NBA, but uh, <laughs> that's just the way that it's turned out. Sam, we always appreciate your time here on the show. Thank you for this today. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. You can follow Sam on Twitter by his name. Coming up, injury time. Your questions for us here on A Kick in the Grass. Finn 2020 with 87 points tops of the league this week in our Premier League fantasy for a kick in the grass it was an absolute 
masterclass from manager Joseph Hefford to Captain Harry Kane and also fit Mo Salah, Jack Grealish, and star of the match day, Bruno Fernandes, into his 11. Just brilliant. Uh, to join a kick in the grass fantasy Premier League, head to PremierLeague.com, open the fantasy tab, and join with the code PPIBD6. Top score of the week earns a shout out. On the show, which is uh, never you or I, Jeff. We never. <laughs> Funny how that works out, eh? I'm closing yeah. in on you, though. I'm closing in. I'm closing yeah, in. I, I've had I've had a tough couple of weeks, and I, I don't want to talk about it too much. Let's get to uh, <laughs> let's get to the questions uh, at Dan Richo underscore and at SN Jeff Blair on Twitter. DMs are open. Send us a question there. Uh, Drogba is God on uh, Instagram. Uh, are you ready to believe in my Chelsea Blues? He asks. Uh, I'm all in. I'm yeah. all in. I was on. You willing start. to say they're title contender yet? Yeah. You know what? Based based on what I saw, based on what I've seen from Liverpool and Man City, yeah. Yes, I, I I think. First of all, I think there's about eight title contenders given the way the table is right now. But yeah, I I think after after watching. Arsenal and paying attention to Man Un- Manchester United, yeah, I think Chelsea Chelsea's all in. I think Frank is in the process of figuring out his balance. He's got a lot of depth in the midfield. I think once he finds out it's okay to not play every one of those guys, uh, they're going to be fine. But uh, I mean, every every major ad they've made has worked out, with the exception of Havertz. And I think Mendy is that's the issue they needed addressing. And that way, it was smart. They appear to like playing in front of him. He's he can still go walk about every now and then, but I think it's obvious the team has way more faith in him uh, than they did in Kepa. And I, I just think Ben Ben Chilwell and Zayek are, are are huge acquisitions. There's a lot of focus in Timo Werner. He's going to get his goals, but my goodness, Chilwell and Zayek are are a handful. And I don't think there are too many teams. I don't think there are too many teams in the Premier League right now that could handle Chelsea when Chelsea's in full flight. And that includes Liverpool and Man City, especially if Liverpool's without uh, without uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold for, for a period of time. Mario on Twitter, who should sign Aguero if he becomes a free agent in the summer? This is, this is an interesting one, Jeff. Uh, he He's allowed to talk to teams on January 1st, and... Uh, you know what? I don't know if they should sign him, but uh, he'd be a great fit at Inter Milan with the rest of their cast of characters that are just a little bit past it, but got the big name value. Uh, and Antonio Conte seems to love those guys like he's still living in 2015 or something. I don't know, but Cunaguero uh, at Inter Milan would fit uh, would fit right in. I'm going to I'm going to go a little different, different than that. I would like to see him go to Barca. Wow. Uh, I, Look, they're 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 in a world of hurt. Um, you know, they're not going to have Fati for what? Four months. Four months. I understand that 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 we're talking about next season as well. That to me is the type of signing that uh, that Barca needs, and I I just cannot believe that Barca will let back-to-back nah, seasons stand. I, I I really don't, and and I can see him going. I can see him going to Spain. I, I and I think he'd be, I think he'd be really good on Barca. Kind of a a Barca that's a little more settled. I, I think he'd be a wonderful player for them. Now he might have to he might have to be convinced that 
convinced of the fact that he's not going to play, you know, 75, 80 minutes every match. Yeah. And that will take a selling job. But in terms of where he could fit and score a ton of goals and really enjoy his football, I absolutely think Barca would be the place for him. It's It's been 10 years, and, and to think, Jeff, uh, Fergie could have signed him if it wasn't for those pesky agent fees, you know? I <laughs> uh, love it. Uh, Steven on Twitter, what's going on with the Canadian national team? That's a great question, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, as far as we know, there's a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of keeping in touch. I'm sure yeah. there's been a lot of sports psychology sessions. Yeah. You know, we, we, we talked to Alexi Lalas a little bit about this and, and how the Americans for this international break are going to put out a team of European-based players. They're going to leave their MLS-based players in North America to continue their, their playoff preparations. Ideally, you'd kind of like to see something like that from Canada, but you know, that begs the question, how many can, as, as much as we've talked about how great Canadian soccer how much growth we're seeing from it right now. Could you really put a team together of European-based players? And probably not. I, I, probably not. So I'm not all that concerned with it because John Herdman, I think, has got an ability to figure things out. What would concern me more is your best player isn't playing right now. He's recovering from a serious injury. Jonathan David has had some growing pains in France, and I that in the league, that's probably to be expected. That's putting it lightly. It's putting it lightly, but I'm, yeah, I don't have a. It's it's strange. I'm really not all that concerned about it because we know that the Canadian internet, the Canadian men's team, there's always something going on. There's always a scheduling issue. There's there's always yeah. an issue getting somebody. Uh, somebody in place you know we do know and I haven't heard anything further this we do know Scott Arfield is at least considering not returning to the Canadian men's program we're led to believe that from Steven Gerrard and if that's the case there goes your your skipper uh, a guy who's really influential in the clubhouse or in the locker room I should say but I think um, I I don't think it's I don't think it's it's having a damaging impact one way or another on 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 the uh, on the Canadian program. But what I do think is happening is I think the Americans are really gaining some momentum here that they may have lost a year or a year and a half ago. We'll uh, continue diving into that over the international break as uh, we'll have a couple of weeks without club football here uh, to come. For Jeff Blair and producer Canberra, I'm Dan Richo. Thanks for listening in on another edition of A Kick in the Grass. <laughs>